Welcome to the new season of economics design. In this season, we're going to focus more on two things. The first one is to break all these projects down according to the token economics framework. And we're also going to focus on interviewing all these experts and designers or engineers designing all these different systems. We're going to get, we're going to start the first episode with this project called Empathoth. Empathoth is a very interesting project and they want to be the global currency 2.0. So really to be a global digital currency for the future. It's very interesting and I like the project very much. So I wanted to break it down. In this episode, we're going to focus a lot on the economics of Empathoth. We're going to cover a couple of things. What Empathoth is, the objective of Empathoth, the token function, and we're going to break the entire economics of Empathoth down according to the token economics framework. For those of you who don't know, what the token economics framework is. I will have a short session over there, and then we're going to break it down according to the various pillars in the framework. So we have market design, mechanism design, and token design. Lastly, I'm going to conclude with implications and conclusions. So let's get started. What is Empathoth? In general, Empathoth wants to be a form of a, a, a more stable token, or most a token with a more stable currency or more stable price. You know that there is no such thing as stable price. Even in USD or GBP or RMB, there's no such thing as a stable GBP or stable RMB. It's always packed to something. However, we can determine stability by having low volatility. So the prices don't move that much. And this is what Empathoth is trying to do. They have this very interesting mechanism, which is to change the supply of the tokens so that the price of the tokens don't move so much. We'll jump into the details later, we'll look at a bit of math, but it's going to be quite intuitive, I hope, for you to understand what the economics of Empathoth is and what do they want to do with the tokens. As always, I want to start with a who, what, when, where, why, how. I think that gives a pretty nice overview of what to expect as we go deeper into the details of these different projects. With Empathoth, I would call it just money 2.0, so it's money with an upgrade. Currently, when we talk about money, sure, you have things like fiat money, so money that's controlled by the central bank and being issued out. There are a lot of different problems with that. Based on your different economic school of thought, you have a lot of different opinions. That's totally fine. The other form of money would be the virtual money. So it could be cryptocurrency money or it can be virtual money. It's basically packed to the fiat money that's out there. Empathoth is building a new money, money 2.0 which is going to be quite different. Let's start with the general topics. So what is Empathoth? Empathoth is a native token in the Empathoth network or ecosystem with a money function. Of course, because it has a money function, it can definitely go beyond the Empathoth network. You can use it in DeFi projects and use it as collaterals, for instance. But it is basically just a native token with the token function of money. Why does Empathoth exist? Because they want to be an alternative to central bank money. There are a lot of problems with central bank money, we'll talk about it later, but in general, they just want to be an alternative. So it gives you more options of your different choices of currency or choices of money when exchanging or accounting for prices of goods and services. That's why Empathoth exists. How do they do that? They do that through various mathematical equations. And these mathematical equations are then transferred into 
smart contracts and executed with machines. We're going to look at some of the math later and we're going to use some graph to understand the implications of the math. Where do we find them? We find them in day-to-day -day transactions, ideally for day-to-day -day transactions. You can use them as collaterals in the DeFi world or for expert traders, they can make some profit with you know, high-frequency trading or some form of trading. Who uses them? Currently, we have DeFi projects using them and traders who are trading. And when is it used? Ideally, the long-term goal or the long-term focus or objective of Ampaforth is for it to be a new form of currency, a new digital global currency where people will be using it to trade on a day-to-day -day basis. However, the other cool thing about Ampaforth is that it has low correlation to asset prices. So this makes it a good asset to add into your portfolio, your investment portfolio, if you're into that kind of stuff. So I will not go deeper into portfolio management and investment because that's not the goal of this channel. The goal of the channel is really to explain the internal economic structure and explain the economics design of all these different projects. I'm just saying one of the use cases is to put it in your portfolio. That's it. Okay, so what is the main unique selling point of Ampleforth? Two things. One is supply elasticity and second is to internalize economic shocks. What do we mean by supply elasticity? It sounds very complicated. It just means that supply can change. Supply will change proportionally to something else out there. And the something else out there is the price of the token. So to give you a general view, when the price of tokens increase, so each token is more expensive, then the system, the smart contract, the network will be minting more tokens so that the price will be brought back down again. Or if the price is too low, then the system will be burning tokens so that the price will go back up to the level again. So this is what we, we mean by a currency with low volatility. So the currency kind of remains quite the same in the long run. That's the goal. What do we mean by internalized economic shocks? So if we look at central bank or just fiat currencies, fiat money right now, a lot of economic shocks are externalized. So you have whatever the monetary policy of the central bank is doing, and it is now added to the, the fiat currency, the money that you, you use, like USD. And then it will affect business transactions and business economic cycles. What they're doing over here in Ampleforth is to, instead of having all these implications in the business world, in the economic environment, you take them in and you embed these economic changes and economic shocks into your tokens. And this is where the supply elasticity comes in because when there's positive or negative shocks, then you have minting or burning of the tokens however way the system needs. And that's how you get the price stability, a little bit more stable where, where the price is a little less volatile. And that really is the main unique selling point of Ampleforth. The objective of Ampleforth, if I have to put it in simple words, is independent commodity money alternative to central bank money. That's a lot of keywords, so let's break it down. What is independent? Independent here means that it's free from political needs or political influence. Because central bank money currently is really affected by political needs or political desires. You have to understand that unless you are a dictator, which is apparently happening a lot in the world today, 2020, right? Can't catch a break. The thing about central bank money is that central bank 
although they are independent, you know, they're mostly independent from the rest of the government, they still have to succumb to all these political pressures. And why are there political pressures? Because governors or the government has to be re-elected in a democracy kind of setting or democracy kind of, of country. And because these governors are interested to be, or these governors want to be re-elected, they have to ensure that you, your ecosystem, your economic growth is positive and you want to reduce any shocks, any negative shocks in your economy. And you can do that via the money. That's why, long story short, central bank money is not exactly independent. It has to... It is affected by some form of political needs or political struggle at the back end. You just don't see it. So this is where independent comes in. Independent here means that we are looking at a, a system or a currency or an asset that is independent of political struggles or political asymmetry. Next, what is commodity money? We're going to talk about it a little bit more in details, but commodity money is money that is not backed by debt. We had an episode before on chartalist versus metalist money, and that's what season one is all about. Season one is all about giving you all the foundations so that in season two and moving forward, we can go really nerdy into all the different terms used. Because I don't want to just be using layman terms. These are economic ter economical terms that will make sense when you understand the fundamentals. One of the episodes that we talked about was chartalist money versus metalist money. Commodity money is basically metalist money, where money, money, the value of money comes from the asset itself, the commodity, not because of debt or IOUs. That is what that is the, the basically the mechanism for money, fiat money that we have today. We're gonna to talk about it a little later, but just to give you an understanding of what commodity money is. It's not backed by debt. That's it. Okay, alternative. Alternative means a substitute, means something else and a variety. And central bank money. Central bank money is fiat money or money issued by the central bank of a country. This is a very important aspect because anyone can issue money. Yeah, I can issue my own money. You can issue your own money. But central bank money is interesting because the value in central bank money is that you pay taxes in this central bank money. And that's how you have almost like a demand of the central bank money. And that's how central bank money has has value to a certain extent. That's why central bank money is valuable, because you pay taxes in central bank money. Anyone can create independent commodity money, sure. But for it to be an alternative to central bank money, there needs to be a little bit more considerations in place. Before we go deeper into all the very technical terms, just a quick refresher of what token functions are. I talk about this a lot of times. There are four main token functions. And based on your token functions, the way you design your system, the way the economics of the system is, it's going to be very different. The four functions are security. So I'm talking about financial security, not cybersecurity. So a, a security that represents an underlying asset. Second is a utility. A utility is something that is used to assess the internal network. So this is very important because the, the value of these utility tokens comes from within the internal network. And then we have money, M. So money is basically currency. It's money to be used to make payments. This is where Epiphone falls in, which is the money function. 
The last function in token functions is stable token. I will also call it a PEC token, but SUMP sounds weird, so SUMS it is. A PEC token is where a token is not, it's a, it's a lot more stable, it doesn't have much fluctuation in the price. Technically, it's not supposed to have fluctuation in the price. It's not affected by external volatility. So, example of stable token would be Tether, so USDT. For every one US dollar that is in the bank, you have one USDT being minted. Or you have you have different projects like Red BTC. For every BTC that is in the system, you create one Red BTC. Or Red ETH. For every one ETH there is in the system, you create one Red ETH. So that is that is stable. And whatever the prices of your trade, it, it could be a, a small, you know, during a short period of time, the prices will fluctuate. But in the long run, it doesn't fluctuate that much. So that's a, a packed stable token. We're going to focus on money. I will put Emperforth in the money segment because it's not packed to anything. It has its system, its algorithm or the math helps it to maintain the low volatility, to maintain the stability. But it is not packed to something. So that's a key difference. Okay, so let's go back to commodity money, which is the which is one of the objectives here, right? What what commodity money is. Previously we talked about in the previous episode. We talked about metalist money versus chartalist money. The difference is that for metalist money, the value of the asset or the value of the money comes from the metal used. So if a gold coin or a, um, I think the five pence in US, a five pence coin is worth, is worth one, no, it's worth six cents because the value of copper and nickel that is used to make that coin has increased. However, if you accept that five pence coin as five cents, that is a chartalist money because the value of the money is backed by a central bank, backed by a central authority. So that's just the main difference. Metalist money is where the value comes from the asset itself used to create the money. Chartalist money is where you have a central authority outside of the money, so like a central bank or government, to back the value of it. Usually they back the value using debt. So you borrow future, future money, which is where you have your government loans, your treasury, your bonds, to give value to money, the present money of today. I can talk a lot about this, so if you want to, watch, if you want to learn more about it, you go watch the, the episode, I'll link it like above. But that itself is a very interesting topic to learn in economics. But let's not go there. Let's go into synthetic commodity money. What is that? So... What we have concluded right now is that commodity money is basically metalist money. So money comes, money has value because of the material used to create that money. Now, what's synthetic then? Synthetic is a digital version. It's a, it's a like a, a cop, like a digital version or or like a copy paste version, a, a fake version almost of the of the underlying asset, which is money. In synthetic commodity money that Emperforth is talking about here, it means the synthetic is not referring to money, the synthetic is referring to commodity. Why? Because when we talk about commodity money in general, we talk about money that's backed by pearls, or money that's backed by shells, money that's backed by gold, by silver. So that's real assets, right? Real physical assets. Synthetic will be almost like a digital version of it. So we don't have this, yeah, there is like digital gold, but when we talk about synthetic commodity in, in Epiforth's case, it's really to create a, a commodity, which is Empathos, synthetically. And that is how 
and perform has value. Not from debt, not from collaterals, but from this synthetic commodity that they have created. I'll explain a little bit more as we go further down, just to give you an, an idea before we go deeper into what money is. It uses commodity money, which is metalist money, forth. Specifically, it's talking about synthetic commodity money. You can't use physical commodity money because everything is digital, everything is on-chain, and you can't really trade physical goods on-chain. Like you can't physically tr trade physical goods on-chain. So we have a synthetic commodity money. Where is its uses? As I mentioned before, it's, it uses, its use is in collaterals or day-to-day -day activities. But one key thing that I want to point out is that its main use is in the base money. So what is base money? Base money is the, the core money or the underlying money to do all these different transactions. So base money could be USD. Balance of payments or you know, trade between countries are being paid in USD. Or your day-to-day -day groceries can be paid in USD. That's like base money, day-to-day -day trading money. That's what they want to do. With this synthetic commodity money, Ampaforth can become a new base money instead of USD or maybe RMB, which they might want to internationalize RMB. We can have Ampaforth, which is free of governance, free of politics, and independent money that could be the base money in the global playing field. And that's where things get interesting. Before I go deeper into breaking them down, I just want to give a couple of examples of what the difference is between AMP, which is the token, AMPL, versus other tokens, and AMP versus USD. I was watching a podcast by Bankless talking about Ampaforth, and they had something a little bit wrong. They're comparing between Ampaforth and Aave or Comp, like Compound. The thing is, you can't compare it like that. Why? Because Aave and Comp, are, they have the token function of a utility token, which is the token over here, utility token. Whereas OMP, AMPL, I don't know how do you pronounce that, is a money function. And because the functions are different, you can't really compare them. An example I would give would be like fruits. OMP is banana and Aave and Comp are apples. Aave could be green apple and Comp could be red apples because these two have the utility function, they're apples. OMP is a money function, it's banana. So you can't really compare them like that. You can compare between Aave and Comp, which completely makes sense because they have, they're both utility tokens. You can use the economics framework to break them down and compare them side by side. But because OMP is a money token, a money function, it has a very different structure, very different economics design, very different kind of considerations where we are designing a money token function versus a utility token function. So keep that in mind. They are different things and it's not, it's not fair to compare them side by side. You can compare Aave and Comp, but not OMP and Comp. How then can we compare OMP? We can compare them with other currencies like USD. The cool thing about OMP or the, the difference with, with Ampaforth is that it has counter-cyclical pressures. Remember we talked about the supply will, will change because of the price? Yeah, there's basically counter-cyclical pressures. When price go up, they mint more. Price goes down, they burn some tokens. So that's just it. That's your counter-cyclical pressures in the super high-level understanding. And why do we do that? Because then it encourages almost a, a stable value, a stable price to the asset which is very different from USD. USD is more like a pro-cyclical pressures as much as what your central banks want to say. 
and they do they do mint or they be they be printing USD very easily and they don't really burn USD or they don't really reduce the supply of USD. There are a lot of economic implications to that. That is more of like a political economics explanation. If you want that, let me know. I am happy to make a video because I have a lot of a lot of information about that. But without going too deep into USD, the difference is that USD doesn't have this independence of they don't have this independence of of counter counteracting or reacting to economic cycles and economic booms and busts. Plus, there is a time lag. So, the USD, if you look over the, the current, the period of, I don't know, let's say 100 years or just 50 years, the past 50 years, the value of USD has been inflating crazily. So, that inflation, inflation in money just shows that it's not a stable, a stable unit price value. Whereas with Amperforth, what they want to do is that in the same scenario, 50 years down the road, Amperforth still has the, the same valuation or the, more or less the same stable price unit compared to what Amperforth is today. And that's the key difference. Okay, so what, where is the economic utility? When I talk about utility, it's, it's not utility tokens, it's more of the, the economic utility, the economic benefits. That, is, that the token has in the system or the system brings about to users. Two things. The first one is that there is long-term sustainability to internalize volatility from price to units. Simple words. It means that when there is fluctuation in prices, you don't see the fluctuation in secondary market. So it will not affect your business transactions. However, what will it do? It will change the unit of OMT tokens that you have. So this is, this is good because... When you, when you externalize, so when you don't internalize volatility, you externalize, that's where your token prices will go up and down like crazy. When you internalize them, then your token prices can be a bit more stable, which is what they want. This is very important for day-to-day -day use cases because you don't want your value of goods or your value to be fluctuating crazily. The system of OMP is that the value of tokens will more or less be quite marginally the same. So if I buy a candy bar or a sweet like chocolate bar of one OMP tokens, 50 years later, it will still be one OMP tokens unless the asset, the, the value of these goods itself have, has inflation. But let's not go into that because that's another economic like downward spiral that we can spend a lot of time talking about. Secondly, with economic utility, it absorbs nominal exchange rates into the system. So it means that exchange rates, I'm talking about the internal system versus the external secondary market, and it can absorb the nominal difference. Firstly, by the traders, and secondly, with the, the system, the protocol or the smart contract protocol that they have in place. If that is the economic utility, what is the financial utility then? The financial utility is to have low correlation with the financial market and low correlation to the prices of BTC and ETH, which is why I say that this is a very good asset for your portfolio, because when we're, when we're building portfolios, we want to have assets that is different or low correlation to whatever that's going on in the financial market or even your major cryptocurrencies. Why? Because if it's going to be moving the same way as, as the other assets, you might as well put your money there, right? You put your money in your portfolio with low correlation so that you can hedge. When S&P or the financial market goes down, then your assets will not be affected because it has low correlation it will just be whatever it is because the correlation doesn't really exist. And that's why it's valuable. That's why as a financial utility, it's valuable. 
I'm talking more of like an investment perspective. Whereas in the economic perspective, I'm talking more of a day-to-day, how the economy works, how we, how we live, how we survive. And so that is, that, those are the two differences. Okay, so now let's go a little bit more into details of how the protocol, how the system, how the tokens work. We always go back to first principles because first principles is something that we can always rely on. First principles means that you can disprove it. Like gravity, gravity on Earth is first principles. You can weigh 200 kilograms, you can weigh 40 kilograms, and when you fall, you will fall down. You don't fall up, you don't fall side, you will fall down. Because gravity is a first principle. It applies to everyone equally. So the first principles that we want to talk about here is thermal expansion. Thermal expansion is the first principle that governs the network or governs the system, governs the token. And it's thermal expansion. So imagine we have two taps. We have hot water tap and cold water tap. Basically, we're back in the UK. So with that, we have two glasses of water. We have a glass of cold water and a glass of hot water. And when we put them out in a very hot country like Singapore or just put them out, what will happen? The temperature will change. And after two hours, you realize that the temperature is the same. So what happens during these two hours? The cold water will start to absorb heat and the temperature will increase. The hot water will be reducing heat and the temperature will decrease. And based on that, they will come back to an equilibrium, which is the same temperature in the water. So this is basically the simple explanation of how Ampoforth works. When there's too much supply, so that's the hot water, the temperature is too high, then the, it will cool down. And it cool down, the temperature drops, the token supply increases. When there's too much supply of the tokens, so you know, the, the token is too hot, the, which is the warm water, that temperature is too high, it needs to reduce the temperature to go back down to equilibrium. So to do that, the token supply has to decrease, just like the temperature has to decrease. And they do that by burning tokens. If there is too much demand, then it's like cold water. It needs to increase the temperature because the temperature is too low. So how do they increase the temperature? They do that by, in the cold water example, they take, they take in more heat energy. In the Ampoforth example, they will be minting more tokens. So at the end, which is in the long run, it will reach stability. It will, it will always reach internal stability. And that is the first principle of thermal expansion to explain Ampoforth. I just want to give an, a quick explanation of, of the protocol. Firstly, it is not really a stable coin. Because a stable coin means that it doesn't fluctuate at all, which, which is the pegged coin, right? A stable coin is usually called stable because it's pegged to something. So it's, it's stable relative to the peg. And that's why it's called stable coin. But with Ampoforth, they don't really base it on one USD. It's not like Tether, where you put one USD in, you mint one Tether, tether coin or Tether token. However, it is benchmarking to the value of US dollar in 2019. And so it fluctuates around that value and the system will, will always try to rebalance it to go back to that one US dollar value. So it's not exactly stable. It there is fluctuation, there is small volatility, but in the long run, it's generally a little bit more stable. But you, it's not really a stable coin because when we talk about stable coin, we are usually referring it to a pegged coin. It's pegged to something else. 
The other thing is that it also reduces overall volatility, as I mentioned. In the long run, in the long run, economics, it's all about long run. So in the long run, there is low volatility. If you look at a day-to-day -day trade, then you can see your know, huge spikes and, and trading volume. That's, that makes sense. But in the long run, the volatility doesn't change that much. And that's the value, or that's the economic value of the entire system. Lastly, the cool thing, which is what a lot of people keep co complaining about, I think it's really cool, is that instead of a fixed price per token, you're actually owning a fixed percentage of the network. What do I mean? It means that if, let's say, I own 10% of the network, the network is valued in dollar, dollar value. So I own 10% of this entire dollar value. If my tokens increase in value, then my tokens will be burnt. So that I will always have 10% value, like monetary value, of the entire network. If my tokens are, if the value has, has, has increased and I'm only, and the, the portfolio or the assets that I hold, it's not 10% of the market, market value of the entire network, then they'll be minting more tokens and adding it to my wallet. So this is the positive or negative rebasing. That means when your tokens are in the wallet, it can increase or decrease. So it can be new tokens be minted or tokens be burnt, like literally taking burnt and taken out of your wallet according, according to the price of tokens. However, that's not, that's not the point of Ampleforth. The point of Ampleforth is that no matter what they do, at the end of the day, you, you, still own this, you still own the same fixed percentage of the network as you, were, as you had before the whole rebasing. So let's look at some math and some graph to, to explain it. I want to give credit to Block Enthusiast on Publish 0x. He did some calculations to look at the change in supply and the change in pricing and how your holding will be affected by the network size. So if you look at the bottom here, this rate, rate box, you see that the holdings increased because the, the market, the value increased. And the holdings went from 10,000 to 11,518. But the network size also increased. Or rather, the network size increased, that's why the holdings increased. But at the end of the day, the percentage of network is exactly the same. It's both 0.0, .0 like a lot of zero, and the network, the percentage of network is the same. So this is what I'm trying to say. When the network size increases or decreases, your holdings will increase or decrease proportionally so that the percentage of your network will always be the same. And this can be quite tricky to people who don't understand how Ampleforth works because they feel that Ampleforth is just a, is cheating and taking their tokens away. That's not true because the value of, of Ampleforth is not defined by the number of tokens that you have or the price of the tokens. It's, the amount of value that you have in your wallet is really defined by the percentage of the network that you own. So no matter whatever the rebasing is, your percentage of the network will always be the same. That's something that I definitely want to bring across before I get started with the, breaking down the entire economics. So to put it very simply, Ampleforth is really just the scarcity of Bitcoin plus the elasticity of USD. So the scarcity of Bitcoin is where Bitcoin is, there's only limited amount of Bitcoin. It's not a limited amount of Ampleforth, but Ampleforth creates this synthetic commodity money. Remember I talked about it just now? So the synthetic commodity of money increases or decreases according to the price. So that is the scarcity of Bitcoin part. 
So because it increases and decreases, there is it's a automated scarcity that is in the smart contract. But it has elasticity of USD because it can increase and decrease when the time is right or when the the information, the oracle or the there's a price difference that triggers the smart contract to be executed. So there's this elasticity of USD. I would summarize and perform that way. So the scarcity of Bitcoin plus the elasticity of USD. That is just the beginning. We have not even started on the fun part yet. The fun part starts now. The fun part is where we're going to break this economics down. We're going to break the project down to fit into the token economics framework and analyze from there to understand the economics design of these, this project. This is the economics design framework. And you, you can see that it's divided into three pillars, market design, mechanism design, and token design. Once again, this is part of the fundamentals. If you want very deep understanding and deep explanation of this framework, I will link it in the episode so you can go and watch that. To put it very briefly, market design is the design of how the environment of, of your ecosystem. So how the tokens interact, how users interact, how users interact with tokens, how tokens interact with each other, how users interact with each other. They, it defines the design of the environment which your tokens and participants interact with. That's market design. So we look at things like thickness. Thickness is more of a network effects, no congestion, because if you have a lot of things going on, how do you resolve congestion issues? And safety, how do you make it safe for people to want to use your, your ecosystem or use your market? Otherwise, they would just transact off-chain or transact in other markets. Then we have mechanism design. Mechanism design is design the, designing the rules of the game. Everyone talks about game theory in economics or game theory in token economics. I agree that game theory is at play, but game theory is the analysis of everything that we've talked about over here. We're clearly not doing analysis that way. We're actually defining what the rules are. And this is where mechanism design comes in. In mechanism design, we are defining the various rules that participants and tokens have to play by. And as you can imagine, when we're designing, designing the rules, we don't use tokens. And that's where token design pillar comes in. The token design pillar is everything got to do with the tokens. The mechanism design pillar is things that you don't really need a token. And I divide, I put them in two different columns or two different pillars because some projects, they don't need tokens, but they still need to think about market design and mechanism design. Some projects use create a token because the token is the incentive model and that's where your token design comes in. So we have market design, mechanism design, token design. And these, these different aspects are consolidated from the various economic fields and economic principles. We don't have first principles like physics, but we do have some form of economic principles that are embedded to create this, this framework. We'll go into details one by one later. I just want to end with a disclaimer. The variables have differing significance. I know it shows a few variables over here, and for some projects, thickness might be more important and no congestion, not so interesting. Or for some projects, non-financial incentive, super important, um, architecture, not so interesting, not so important. So this is not, uh, this is not a one-size-fits-all model, it's just a framework, and you pick and choose the kind of variables that is relevant, and, you can, and the, the relevance will differ. So not every variable is equally relevant.
and also because they're not equally relevant, it, you have to always go back to your token use case, your token functions that we talked about, talked about just now, the SUMS, and your token business model. Lastly, this framework only considers the internal endogenous variables. What does that mean? It means that this framework only considers the things that you, you can design as a, as a designer, as an economics designer, to design the internal network system, the internal system. That means if in the secondary market, you have a big will, or in the secondary market, you have speculators, or in the secondary market, people are using your money for Ponzi scams. That is, without of your that is outside of your control, then this framework doesn't work. This framework is for dis defining or designing the internal ecosystem. So your external variables, of, like speculators, you can use mechanism design to kind of edit and reduce the impact of secondary, impact, uh, secondary market impacts. But the primary focus of economics design framework is to design the internal economy of your system. Okay, so let's get started with market design. Once again, market design is the design of the environment which your participants and tokens will interact and exist on. In market design, we look at three different aspects. Thickness, no congestion, and safety. For thickness, the goal is to create a new global digital money. Right now, it's still in a sort of an experimental phase because we want to see if the people demanding it. So we create, you, start, you do that with creating thickness. So you want to test if there is demand for it. You can do, you can just say, I want to test it. I want to see if, if people care about it, if people want to use it. That is, that is as much as you can, you can go in your, intern, your, your primary market or your, your internal incentive, internal model, in, internal economics. The other thing that you could also do is to, within the system itself, create an incentive mechanism. So they have this program called uh, Gazer. And in Gazer, you basically, it basically works kind of like a bank. If I put $100 in my bank, my bank would give me like 0.01% interest. In the same way, when you put Ampleforth token or op tokens in the Gazer project, or according to what the Gazer project talks about, then you will get some returns in op tokens. So it increases your holding. It's like a savings, like a fixed savings or, or a fixed savings mechanism. So... This is everything that they can control within the ecosystem. Remember, I told you, the framework only considers internal endogenous variables. The internal endogenous variable, which is to increase demand or to increase interest in the token, is basically just to increase thickness by doing this incentive, incentive mechanism. It's like liquidity mining, kind of. However, in the external market, in the external kind of use cases, there are a lot of ways to be using OMP tokens you can do that, for example, by using it as collaterals to be doing yield farming. You can be using it to be, to be used as collaterals to be borrowing against the OMP tokens, OMP tokens that you have and stuff like that. So you can, there are a lot, of way, a lot of other use cases to increase thickness in the secondary market because this is, this is a, a money, money token function, not a utility token function. So the thickness that we're talking about here is still quite limited. If we are using it in the utility function way, a utility token function way, then thickness is something that we can definitely expand a lot more on. No congestion, how do they, how do, they do that? You know, this is not super important in the project and what they do is to have rebase every 24 hours. Can you imagine if the system rebases every hour and every hour you'd be worried if my tokens are going to be, 
are, are am I going to have new tokens or are my tokens going to be burnt? And it will have a lot of unnecessary congestion in the network. So they just do rebasing every 24 hours. And for safety, we're looking at two types of safety. One is the Oracle market feeder. We'll talk a little bit more in the mechanism design. And one is a rule-based monetary policy, which we'll talk about in the token design. Because this is a, as I mentioned again, because this is not a utility token, this is a currency, or like a money token. The market design is structured a little bit differently, or you have to think about market design a different way compared to a utility token. Okay, now let's go to mechanism design. In mechanism design, we have governance. In governance, we look at decision-making protocol, we look at resolution mechanism. In NFI, non-financial incentives, we look at voting protocols, allocation mechanism. In structure, we look at bargaining protocol and community information. Once again, not every variable is important, not every variable is necessary. Let's get started with governance. Usually, I would say that governance is the most important variable in most of the projects, especially utility tokens. However, once again, this is money, and the whole money function has governance in a slightly different way. For Ampleforth itself, governance is rule-based. So they, there is no decision-making protocol, no resolution mechanism. Everything is rule-based. It's all defined in the math, defined in the smart contract, executed by machines. So governance is, is important here, but governance has nothing got to do with humans at all. So you have the market feeder. This is the little diagram that, that they have. And the, the smart contract looks at this. So market feeder gives the price and volume of the AMP tokens into this market source zero and market source n. It goes into the market oracle and to get price and volume. And then it goes into the monetary policy, which we'll talk about later. And it will come out of ERC20 tokens. So it will rebase, it will rebase, it will increase or decrease the ERC20 tokens. So when it rebases, it will be affecting any users that owns the token. And the monetary policy is executed on Ethereum because this is an ERC20 token. The underlying layer one blockchain platform is Ethereum. And that's why the monetary policy, the whole smart contract execution is all based on Ethereum. So this is basically the governance model. It's quite simple. I think it's, it's you know, straight to the point. Not a lot of messy, not a lot of complication and easy to execute. So governance is rule-based. You can see that in the entire thing, the only thing is just the market feeder, which is your external oracle providing information. Then you have the rebase, which is done by smart contracts, done by machines. And, and then it will affect users, but users will not be interacting directly with the smart contract. It's just the oracle, which is the market feeder. So governance, rule-based, no human interactions. What about the non-financial incentive? In non-financial incentives, we usually talk about a voting protocol and allocation mechanism. So we don't have voting here because it's just not redundant. You have, usually you talk more about voting in like securities or utility, but in non-financial, in money, money function, you don't have voting, but we talk about allocation mechanism. So the allocation mechanism is defined by math and smart contract. And when we go back and see that there's a rebase, so you see over here, there's a, a rebase that affects the various users. This is where it affects the, the tokens in your wallet. And the allocation is defined by math and smart contract. So the smart contract will rebase, will calculate what the rebase is and affect users. So it will affect the amount of tokens in your wallet. 
And lastly, in mechanism design, we have structure. In structure, we talk about bargaining protocol. So bargaining protocol is more of how prices are being set internally. We don't have that because this is money and we don't talk about bargaining protocol, but we talk about community information. Community information is how, how do you get off-chain or off-network off information into your, net, into your system. So, you know, community information. Community from either users give you, the, give you their information, oracles give you their information, or you somehow find some off-chain data that comes into your ecosystem. So that's where we have community information. And in, in the structure for community information of Amperforth, we have a market oracle contract. So the, the protocol will be taking in the information that's given by the contract, as we have seen in this little very beautiful graph or diagram of market feeder with price and volume. And they will recompute the supply target based on the latest price difference. So when prices change, then the supply will also change. And so the protocol will be calculating that. Why? A very important thing is that you want to take external price information into the supply. Remember, when we went all the way back to internalizing volatility from price to units in the economic utility aspect, this is what I meant. I meant, I meant it in that way. So when there's you know, the price differences, so we call that nominal exchange rate, or there's a price difference, you want to internalize this price difference by changing your supply. So this is what the Oracle does. The community information is from the Oracle, which is the market feeder. They currently have you know, some whitelisted sources and they also work with Chainlink to be getting the information. What is the information that the Oracle is giving or the output to the Amperforth protocol? It's just the Amperforth price and trade volume in the secondary market. So this is how it balances. Internally, they are looking for equilibrium price. They can't they can just do that by ignoring the external, the secondary market, right? So how do they do that? They, go in, they ask oracles to, to say, hey, go out and find the prices for me. What is the trading price? What is the trading volume? Let me know so that I can change my internal price to be matching the external market. So this, is, this helps to balance out. Balance out any fluctuations, any volatility. That is... That's the structure from the external, external market side. How, how does it look like as a user? So firstly, the protocol makes changes according to smart contract rules, and then it will, it will affect users by changing the supply in the wallet. And users, see, at the end of the day, economics is about incentives, punishments, and behaviors. That's it. Economics is really simple. So users will be changing their behavior. So selling or buying tokens, whatever you want. And this will affect the secondary price, secondary market. And then price information will go back to the protocol again. So this will keep, will keep going round and round and round until, until it reaches some form of stability. And stability in economics is what we call equilibrium. So ideally, we just want to look for equilibrium. And they do this with having equilibrium between the, the primary market so which is where the smart contract does everything, and the secondary market, which is your, your trade volume and trade price. I know I've been talking a lot, but this is where things get really exciting. It's the token design. In token design, we look at a few things. We look at token policy, which is basically monetary policy. The fundamentals from monetary policy are just extracted and put it in, in this. We look at valuation as well. Internal valuation, not external valuation. Look at financial incentives. 
So platform activities, return to stake or return to investment, because there needs to be financial incentives in your system. And then architecture, so property rights or distribution. Once again, not everything is important, depending on the, the token design, your token business model, but this is just the framework. So the, monetary, the, the general token design in general for Amperforth is that it's a rule-based policy. So the policy will, will, fo will follow a pre-specific plan that is really predefined. Why? Because money is time inconsistent. And money is subjected to different kind of political needs and, and political influences. So we want, to, we want to understand, to talk about token design for Amperforth, we have to understand money. The modern day money, as I mentioned, so you can once again refer to the video that I talked about with Chartalist money versus Metalist money, foundations in season one. We want to talk about the difference between modern day money and commodity money. Modern day money is what I call Chartalist money or what economists call Chartalist money. And it's basically just that. I borrow money from the future to be printing money of today. If you look at what the Fed has done in this entire year, they're not just reducing interest rates, they're not just reducing bank, bank rates, they're also borrowing a lot of money. They are borrowing, they're borrowing money through treasury, through, through um, purchasing debt of other, other companies. And when they purchase debt, which is future money, because the money only comes into existence in the future because it's, it's a debt, right? You repay them in the future. And they use debt to be minting or printing new money. So that's modern day money. It's basically debt. It's like an IOU. IOU to the future. And commodity money is different. Commodity money is not debt. Commodity money is basically the asset itself has value. So commodity money would be like gold coins. Gold, gold has value. That's why gold coin has value. With Amperforth, it uses, it, it's defined as commodity money. It doesn't, it's not, there's no debt, there's no IOU. IOU will be your collaterals. So it absorbs the nominal exchange rate information in. What do I mean? It means that in the secondary market, if there's price differences, which is your nominal exchange rate, it absorbs the information in and be and rebasing the supply based on the demand of, based on the price of money. The important thing, why I keep talking about this is money 2.0. This is money 2.0 because there is huge implications in the global trade perspective. We talk about global finance, global trade, this is where things get very interesting. This is where Amperforth has a bit more of the economical value. It absorbs nominal exchange rate. We, get, we got that already, right? It doesn't, it doesn't care about you know, what, what the fluctuations of GBP is or USD is. When there's price difference, they will absorb it and be minting the new supply or be burning supplies accordingly. So there's, it absorbs nominal exchange rate. But the other thing, the other cool, cool stuff is that it, it, it increases um, the global coordination of people, activities, and participants. The thing about economics is that other than supply, demand, and opportunity cost, something that's really cool is coordination. So how do we increase coordination between different participants? As you can imagine, the easiest way to increase coordination globally or in a, in a small micro environment is with money. And Amperforth is the money to do that. When, when there's you know, global crisis, let's say the pandemic of this year, and we need to increase or there's more global demand or less global demand for money in general, then Amperforth can be taking the information in to be increasing or decreasing the supply of Amperforth tokens. 
So this is this is really part of um, coordinating the different global needs in a macro perspective. And this is where it gets pretty cool. We're not at that stage right now. Right now, you know, Epiforth has just kind of started wanting to see if people are demanding it, but this can scale quite, quite large, quite, quite great. And that's where things are super fun. So what is commodity money? Commodity money is basically money that is based on like a commodity, like gold. Gold is a commodity. So gold coins, it's not valuable because it's a coin, but gold coin is valuable because gold is valuable. So that's commodity money. The thing about commodity money is that it has to be naturally scarce. However you want to define the value of gold, you can. there are a lot of different models out there, like stock-to-flow model. But the thing about naturally scarce is that when if there's a completely abundance in gold in the world, the value of gold will be pretty much very, very low. Okay? Not, not zero, but a very low value. And that makes it, that doesn't make it a very good medium to be used as, as money. So the whole fact of, the whole point of having commodity money or the whole point of it being a commodity money is that it's naturally scarce. Commodity money is also politically independent. What do I mean? It means that no matter whatever the government, you know, if it's going to be a dictator or it's going to be um, social democracy or whoever wins the next 2020 US elections or whatever happens to the various elections in the world, it doesn't change the fact that gold has value. The value of it, specific value, is another thing to be debated upon. But gold will always have value and that is why it's, it's politically independent. So what Maybe it might even increase or decrease, but it doesn't matter. Gold will always have value, no matter whatever the political landscape is. And that's why that is one of the, the ways to define commodity money. And lastly, it's costly. Costly as in the cost of production. The cost of production is very costly, and that's, and that's what makes the, the value of gold high. So it's, it's scarce, it's costly to produce, or it's costly to create one, and that's why the value increases. So what is synthetic commodity money? Remember, we talked about how Ampoforth is a synthetic commodity money. So instead of gold, we have AMP, AMP, the token. It is, instead of naturally scarce, it's digitally scarce, because the only way to be increasing or decreasing the, the tokens, the AMP tokens, is by the smart contract. No one else can do that. I mean, you can buy a lot and invest it, but still, the, the system will auto-rebase to make sure that the price is always tending towards $1. It's politically independent because everything is governed. Remember, I told you, the governance is only by machines. It's only by oracles. No humans involved. So this is where it's politically independent. And the cool thing about synthetic commodity money is that you, you have a cost advantage. Because if we look at mining gold, mining silver, even mining Bitcoin, it's quite expensive. With gold and silver, you know, you have to set up the whole mining farm. It's very expensive. With Bitcoins, you also have to set up a mining farm. And there are a lot of competition. There's also a huge waste of, of electricity. And so that's why it's costly in that sense. For Bitcoin, you know, it works to its advantage. As I mentioned again, all these kind of things, all these variables, are. it's not like a one-size-fits-all. It's not like you, you need to have cost advantage when you're creating your own money. No, it's in this case the application of cost advantage to Ampoforth is good because the way to produce Ampoforth tokens is by the smart contract to be minting or burning tokens. No one else can do that. 
which is different from Bitcoin because Bitcoin is decentralized and anyone who has the, the mining machine or the ASICs or the GPU can be minting Bitcoins, which is quite different. That's why you, have a, you need to have cost disadvantage in Bitcoin. But with Empathoth, everything is governed by the machine. That's why you have cost advantage. You want to look at cost advantage. Let's go deeper into the, really the token design, all the different variables. Let's begin with, with monetary policy. We're going to talk about monetary policy, then valuation. In, in Empathoth, the machines define the monetary policy. Everything is rule-based. Remember, just now, in the beginning, I told you everything is rule-based. And so everything is defined by the machines. Everything is defined in code. So firstly, it's the machines define it. Secondly, it has a counter-cyclical approach. It means that when the price is high, more tokens will be minted. When the price is low, tokens will be burnt. So this is a counter-cyclical approach. And the impact of this is that it reduces economical fluctuations. Because in the secondary market, if there are economic fluctuations, then the system, the machine, will internalize this fluctuation to be creating, to be, to be adjusting the price accordingly or adjusting the supply accordingly. And so it reduces economic fluctuations. The, part, the entire part of the machines defining monetary policy is really just to expand and contract the supply without human intervention. And that's how they can remain politically independent and that's how the machines can be running it. That's how you have a different form of governance compared to other systems. So if you want to look at tables, this is a, this is a table that is provided by Empathoth. You have a price and quantity available. And you see that the supply is a straight line because um, in monetary policy, supply is a straight line. It, it doesn't change that much in the short run. So the supply, can, the supply can move to change the different quantity, but the price will always remain the same. You see E1 star and E2 star are the same price. And this is done by changing the demand. When supply changes, the demand will also change, which is your D1 and D2 that you see over here, the lighter lines. When the supply changes, the demand will also change. The demand changes in the secondary market because there, there's, depending, there's like more or less tokens available. So the demand changes. But the ultimate goal is that the, the price will be the same, which is the one US dollar that is more or less trying to, to pack to. If that's the case, then what is the specific monetary policy they were talking about here? The specific monetary policy is this rebasement contract, this smart contract that does the rebasing. So it will, it will increase or decrease the supply beyond a certain threshold. When the price is, let's say, $1, and it increases to $1.15, there's a 15% increase in price. When there's a 15% increase in price, there's a 15% increase in supply. Remember, I told you, when price increases, supply increases. When price drops, supply drops. So there's an increase in 15%. And that means in your wallet, if you have, 10, if you have 100 tokens, then you will end up with 115 tokens because the supply increases. So if we look at this, if, okay, if we're talking about rebasement as the contract, rebasement as the monetary policy, what are the variables we have to think, we have to consider when defining the rebasement formula? It's basically just two things. One is the price target, which is P. So you see this solid bl black line over here, that's P, that's price. That's one US dollar. And then you have a threshold, which, which is your delta, which is 5%. So they define it as 5%. So if prices are within this range, so $1 plus minus 5%, then there will be no rebasement. However, if prices go above or below, then there will be expansion or contraction 
in your monetary policy. So monetary policy can do three things. Expansionary policy, contractionary policy, or stays the same. So because of that, the prices will... Because, because the, if there's prices change, you can't expect the prices to be fixed at one USD. Otherwise, every 24 hours, there'll be massive fluctuations in price. Instead, they have a threshold where you can go slightly within the, this range and it will not rebase. Because rebase means you have increased or decreased in the tokens. Can you imagine every single day when you wake up, the tokens in, the tokens in your wallet just keeps changing? That's quite unfair and that's just, that just doesn't really make sense. So there's a threshold that the, the ecosystem will be abiding by. As I mentioned, with the monetary policy, there are three different scenarios. You have expansionary, contractionary, or it stays the same. In economics, we have this thing called supply smoothing. Because if the price increased by 50%, you can't expect the tokens to be increasing, increasing your token in your wallet by 50% the very next day or decrease by 50% the very next day. It's too much of a shock, and that will have huge implications in the economics fluctuation part and huge implications in a lot of other aspects. So we want to minimize that. How do we do that? We do this thing called supply smoothing. So we increase and decrease the balance over a period of 10 days. Now, that's all the monetary policy part. How will that affect the valuation? So if you remember, we talked about it in, I think, episode 18 or 19 of this thing called invariant, where we talk about automated market makers and using bonding curve. One of the things that, one of the concepts that we talked about was invariant. Invariant is a constant that will always be there. This is a, once again, a physics first principle, and we want to apply that into all these economic systems that we're building. And invariant is something that doesn't change. And this is where valuation is where invariant is being applied in Ampleforth. The x, so invariant in this example is just a times b equals x. So the invariant here is x. a and b will be you know, price of tokens and supply of tokens. x is the thing, is the invariant which is the constant. It doesn't change. If a increases, so the value of a increases, which is your token prices increase, then b will be the supply that you have in your wallet. It will decrease. Why do we do that? Because we want x to be constant. We always want X to be the same. If you didn't change the total, the, if you didn't change additional supply to your wallet, then we want X to always be the same. So if A changes, B will change. How we do this? We do this through rebasing. So we change the supply by increasing or decreasing, and we have a rebase lag, which is what I talked about before of supply smoothing. And it will, it will become, it will take a longer or shorter time to get back to $1, depending on, on the change in supply. If we look at code, because people understand things via, easily via code, the, the supply delta, so supply delta means supply change, is equals to the total supply plus the exchange rate minus the target rate. So the target rate is one US dollar. The exchange rate is the existing exchange rate in the secondary market divided by the target rate. So this is your, your supply delta, so the change in supply. If it's positive, then it, it will, or it's positive or negative, then it will affect the different changes. And this, the other thing is the supply, supply delta with respect to the rebase lag. Supply delta alone is the total amount of change or increase or decrease in the total supply of Ampleforth tokens. But the rebase lag means how, how, many, how much does it affect you on a day-to-day -day basis? 
Because the supply delta, the change in supply, will not be affected in one day. It will be affected across 10 days. So let's say the, the rebase lag is 10 days, which is what they have right now. And the supply delta is plus 15%. So remember, just now we said that the price is $1 and it became $1.15. So that's a 15% increase in price. And that means you, you need to have a 15% increase in total supply. Not individual supply, but total supply. And with, with that, you have 15% divided by 10 days, which is 0.15% per day. So that's 0.15% change per day. So when we talk about the rebase, number one, we always have the same network proportion. So if you go back to the invariant, A times B equals X, X is basically the same network proportion. X is the constant. So when supply increases or supply or when price, or price increases or decreases, the supply will change accordingly to give you the same network proportion. There is only changes in the supply side because the demand side is in the secondary market and they will affect the demand will be anything that people demand, but the smart contract will only affect the supply side. The demand side is really dependent on people's behaviors, just like in economics, just like in monetary policy for, for USD. There is, no, there is no change in market capitalization in general, you know, during that short period of time, because when prices increase, then they are just going to, to be supplying the increasing the total supply of tokens so that prices will go back to $1. With that, it's also important to remember that the change in supply is proportional because we have the, the constant that we talked about invariant over here. So if your wallet is 10% of the network, then the supply will be increasing or decreasing according to 10% of the entire total supply of tokens in the network. And the next box is financial incentives. In financial incentives, we have platform activities and return to investment or return to stake. The return to investment or the financial incentive in Ampleforth, which is the financial utility that I talked about just now, is that it has, co it has low correlation to crypto assets. They've done an audit on that. I will, I will give you the link if you want to look at the correlation between increase and decrease in the prices of BTC and ETH and how will it affect the prices of, of Ampleforth. And there is very, very low correlation. The other thing is also the entire system tries to control the price volatility. So whatever the platform activities are, the platform activities, the system will self-correct with changing the supply to reduce the price volatility. Some people call it no price volatility. I, there is always going to be price volatility, but it's just more control. Lastly, when we talk about returns to stake or return to investment, we have the gazer incentive mechanism. What, as I mentioned before, it's basically like a bank. You put Ampleforth tokens in there via Uniswap, the liquidity pool, and you'll be minting some Ampleforth tokens. So if you put 100 USD in the bank, the bank gives you 0.01% of, um, like one cent of USD. And that's how it works. So you want to, they want to encourage people to be staking um, Ampleforth tokens in the, the Uniswap liquidity pool. You can go check it out if you're interested. And lastly, in the token economics framework, we have architecture. In architecture, we have property rights and distribution. Distribution, the difference between distribution and allocation is that allocation is allocating new, newly minted tokens or the different assets in your system. Distribution is more related to your initial stage of pre-mine or stuff like when you have vesting periods. So the architecture, the, the distribution, I want to talk about distribution, that a lot of big VCs are, are used, are engaged, or a lot of VCs funded the project. So you can see all the different investors over here. A lot of Ampleforth tokens are, are being vested by these different investors. 
So that's where um, the distribution is. So if you think about it, there is value of Empathos tokens because these investors put money in. There's a lot of controversy to that, but I'm not going to go into details. You can watch a lot of other people complaining about it. I just want to conclude with implications and conclusions. Firstly, this is an Austrian school of thought, specifically Frederick Hayek, where he looks at money in a non-Keynesian way. Without going so much, too much into details, this is an Austrian school of thought. The traditional central bank fiat money that we talk about is more of a Keynesian school of thought. So that's where it, things are a bit different. Second, there's a time lag. So remember that even if there's a fluctuation in prices, you don't see the increase or decrease in the token supply at the full capacity. It, there's a time lag. So it, it's only 10% of the full impact. Something to take note of. And because of that, because of the time lag, something interesting to understand, which is the speed of change, the speed of supply expansion or supply contraction. One thing that they have in their protocol is that there's unlimited expansion. So that means when things are going very good, it will be minting a lot of tokens, which is what we saw, I think two weeks ago, where there was unlimited expansion, increase in supply. However, when they have to rebase negatively, it has to contract, there's a limit to how much it can reduce, which is 10%. So if it's increasing, if it's decreasing by too much, then, and the time lag says that from today to tomorrow, I need to reduce 20% of the supply, tokens in my wallet will be burnt. I can only do it at 10%, not 20%. So this is quite related to the traditional uh, fiat central bank money, because the way to... Increasing supply is very easy, very quick, but reducing the supply takes a very, very long time. And I'm actually quite interested to see how will this fare in economic global crisis like this. And lastly, I just want to end with Triffin Dilemma. Triffin Dilemma is where a currency is used to govern its internal domestic economy, but it's also used in the external economy, so like USD. USD is used internally in the US market, it's also used externally. 60% of the balance of payment or trade between nations are done in USD. So this shows that USD has a big implication and big use case in the global financial world. However, when we talk about different monetary policy, the central bank in the US has to think, mm, should I prioritize my domestic country and my domestic economy's need to be having the right monetary policy? Or should I think about a bigger, wider scope of the international playing field of the international financial economy to be editing the, the monetary policy accordingly. So this is the Treffin dilemma. The cool thing about Empathoth is that it doesn't really have this because they don't have an internal economy, it's just an external economy. So it reduces this dilemma, which makes it a more efficient currency. That's it with this case study. It took a little bit of time, but this is what you can imagine as what we're we going to do moving forward. We're going to look at the various case studies, break them down, understand it. So you, if you are a token designer, you want to understand how, how robust or how sustainable, like robust, sustainable, economical, sustainable these systems are, how they're being built. This is where it will be very interesting for you. And you can, and I'll be making more weekly videos that are specific to this kind, of, this kind of style. You can get premium access at bit.ly forward slash econs design or you can just scan the QR code over here. Or if you're an investor and you're interested to understand more about DeFi, understand the internal economics of why things are like that, and understand if this is something that you probably want to, to learn a little bit more as part of your research and due diligence, 
this is where you're, you're also, you'll probably be interested. So this goes, this leads you to a patron, patron and you can just get, you can sign up and then you can get premium access over there. Till then, I'll see you in the next episode. Comment below if you think anything is wrong or comment below if you want other details and other case studies to be explored. See you. Bye.